0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series.
1: So welcome everyone. Um, My name is Mira Young, and it's nice to see familiar and also new faces. And I'm um, honored to be here and to just have this opportunity to deepen my own practice by um, you know seeing what's in my heart and supporting our practice together, um, individually and as a community. Um, As some of you know, I've been um, I'm a community Dharma leader and um, I'm a psychotherapist that works a lot with trauma and suffering and also joy and transformation. And I teach meditation in various settings, academic and otherwise. And um, it's really a blessing to be here. Um, So today's um, morning talk is on tasting the bitter with the sweet dukkha and sukha in everyday life. Bitter sweet, bitter sweet. You know, how can we taste the honey? in the midst of such suffering. So dukkha, and we'll be talking about the three kinds of dukkha, the three kinds of sukha, which is the sweetness, the dukkha, the suffering. So first I just want to shift what I had planned to just be with what my Dharma sister Patrice told me this morning as I hadn't listened to the news yesterday um, about the synagogue shootings. And my heart was full from hearing about the bombings in Sri Lanka and then from New Zealand, of course, from the mosques and the Muslim community. So all the traditions, I feel my body vibrating with compassion and pain. Now just take a moment. And that's why it came to me to maybe offer the Tonglin practice, like how can we bear such suffering? How can we continue to repeat these patterns of harming each other, of religious wars? Since I was a young teen, junior high age, or even earlier, I began to write poems about questions like why is there war? Why is life so unfair? Trying to understand the paradoxes and dichotomies in our human experience. I grew up in Chicago in a very traditional Jewish family. As some of you know, I'm a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, so I was born into this dukkha, this suffering. And also how I would witness that People who would pray in the, in the small temple, the shul in the basement, they were all survivors, and they would sing and pray with their whole bodies and hearts out for that, to transform that suffering. So grateful to be alive, to survive, to have children and one of the practices that we would engage in in this time of year, as we know, Passover, Easter, the time of spring and renewal, is um, that of um, participating in the Passover Seder. And since then, I've been part of or participated in, you know, more feminist versions and other ones that are much more inclusive. And and now um, this year, I did not participate, but I I recalled the stories of the bitter herbs mixed with the haroset, or the sweetness, and together we would take on the unleavened bread, both the bitter and then take the sweet, and then we'd also take an egg, a symbol of life and spring, and we dip it in the salty, very salty water, and there was an understanding that this is life, and that somehow, we can live again in spring and freedom. And then I came across, I was thinking about um, slavery and that not only the Jews were enslaved, but the African-American people, other times of so much slavery and genocides. And for me, it's this universal, there's no none of us um, in Europe, all over the world, there's been so many times we have harmed each other. Um, Harriet Tubman, I actually have the phone out for a reason. Um, <laughs> from songs, I, so what I did, what we did on Easter on Sunday morning is my husband and I went and, um, saw the film Amazing Grace. If any of you have seen it, Aretha Franklin, 1972 footage. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's an infusion of such um, powerful transformation, healing, and love, and uh, grace. And hearing her sing Amazing Grace, which as many of you know, is a song that was actually written by a white man who had a slave ship, who had an opening, a transformation in his heart, and he wrote the song Amazing Grace and that Harriet Tubman was sometimes called the Moses of her people, a conductor of the Underground Railway, and would help to lead escaped slaves to freedom, and that this is a story that is not fully researched but may be true. It says, while it hasn't been proven, it is believed that Harriet Tubman used this traditional spiritual I can say the word Negro spiritual is how it's referred, as a way to warn slaves to get into the water, to hide their scent from the slave hunting dogs. Wade in the water. Wade in the water, my children. God's going to trouble the water. And then I thought about, you know, how... Well, when I was listening, watching the film, and people were witnessing and raising their hands, and it, and it reminded me of being in that shul, in that temple, where the hearts would cry out, and how this was 72, just a few years after the Civil Rights Act was passed and Martin Luther King's death. Just the power of that, and the bitter and the sweet, and how this this pours out of us, how this human heart can open and transform with this music. And one more story about that is um, maybe some of you know Mark Nepo was in town um, recently. He's a wonderful, very deep poet, two-time cancer survivor. And I didn't realize that he also had a grandparent who was a Holocaust survivor. And one of the stories he tells, and he has a new book about community and in the world and how we need to have friendship and really see and and connect together and how even the smallest action like we learn in our practice can really help and make a difference and heal the heart. And he shared a story about this one town in Europe where the Nazis had come and that they knew they were going to be taken to Auschwitz to the concentration camps. And um, there was an orchestra in this town. And what did they do? They practiced and then they played most beautifully before they were taken. So how is that possible? Bitter and sweet. Toni Bernard, who's a Dharma teacher who's lived with chronic illness for many years, she said, the Buddha gave us a lot to do in this short lifetime starting with getting down into the trenches with dukkha, the suffering, culminating with the cessation through the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. She says, I, for one, need to get to work. Achen Cha says there's two kinds of suffering, the suffering which leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The first pain of grasping after fleeting, pleasures and aversion for the unpleasant and the continued struggle of most people day after day. The second is the suffering which comes when you allow yourself to feel fully the constant change of experience, pain and pleasure, joy and anger without fear or withdrawal. The suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. Again, how we suffering the suka, the dukkha. So dukkha is known as pain, unsatisfactoriness. You know, not getting what we want. And there's several kinds of dukkha, and uh, I really like the word dukkha. I may have mentioned it before because it sounds Yiddish to me. And uh, I grew up in a home where they spoke Yiddish, and, and I learned a lot of swear words because that's the, they would resort to that when they didn't want us to understand. So dukkha sounds like one of those swear words. <laughs> and when I teach mindfulness-based stress reduction and they use a word like um, stress for dukkha, I, <laughs> I, I just can hardly say it. Mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's like dukkha, yeah. So we all know what that is. So um, what are the three kinds of of dukkha? The first kind, and actually um, one of my Dharma teachers said to me once, Mira, you're a dukkha-dukkha person. (laughs) I actually took it as like, thank you, you acknowledge my suffering. So... um, she says, uh, dukkha dukkha is, um, the kind of unpleasantness that we have aversion to. It's when we're caught in the aversion. Like, we really can't stand it, right? And we're very averse and we try to get away from it. And then the second kind of dukkha in Pali is sankara dukkha. And sankara dukkha is all the stories, the mental formations, the ways that we, you know, create and make stories and create more suffering on top of suffering. So I'll give you a little quick example from my life the other day. So, you know, you get to be a certain age and, you know, stuff happens. And um, um, I had a bit of a health scare and fortunately I'm okay and everything's good and I still have a, a brain and a body and I decided to do this optional extra test to check out my um, heart arteries. You can go in for $100 and get this done. And I thought, yeah, why not? You know, my one grandmother died at 58 of heart attacks. So I thought, I'll check it out, you know, see how clogged the arteries are. Anyway, long story short, I don't have any clogging. It's amazing. And um, But uh, I went for the test like about 9 in the morning. And then um, I was told I'd get the results, oh, later in the week or next week, right? Well, um, that morning I was out for a jog and run. I had a little time, and I'm out by the river, and all. And I had my phone with me, and I heard a ding, and I opened up, and there's uh, my chart. Your test results are ready. I'm like, oh, <laughs> and the mind just went, whew, you know, talk about mental fork. Patients, is this good news or is this bad news? You know, and I'm imagining that I'm going to have to go in and cancel my clients and have you know be on the table tonight at surgery, and uh, and then I just saw it. I saw this, you know, the aversion, the sankara dukkha, and then um, and then I just caught it. My mind just went quickly, and this happened just in like less than a minute. And the, and the mind was aware, and it went, ah, uh, no, 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 thank you. We're not going to do that. Mm-mm, no. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So um, just stopped, enjoyed the rest of my walk, had um, uh, brunch with a friend, and you know, and uh, and then I didn't have my password, and I had to, anyway. Long story short, <laughs> it was not until four in the afternoon, in my car, before I saw my client. I quickly um, finally got into my, my chart. Good news! <laughs> zero, zero, you know, plaque, zero. Your arteries are clear. I'm like, I'm glad. Relief, the sweetness of relief, right? Bitter and sweet and not knowing. So that's one of the dukas. Does anyone else go there? No, just for milk milk. <laughs> I didn't think so, no. You know, we make up all these stories. And then the third kind of dukkha, I don't know if I can pronounce it correctly, the parinama, the parinama dukkha, that's the dukkha that arises in response to unpleasant experiences. But this is the one, sorry, the other ones, dukkha dukkha and the um, sankhara are in response to unpleasant. So now we got dukkha with the pleasant. All right? So what is dukkha with the pleasant? I want it to last. The beautiful sunset, the yummy chocolate, you know, the time laughing with friends, right? We want it to last. And we're so busy wishing it would last forever that we miss it because we're not just fully present, kissing the joy as it flies. So we want to hang on to it, we want to make it last. Um, So, again, it's all about what? Letting go, showing up, freeing ourselves. So you want to know the three kinds of sukha? All right, how about some happiness? So, sense pleasures, right? Sense pleasures bring a lot of sweetness. Mm? Sounds, right, that music, listening to Aretha, mm listening to um, a baby laugh. I was in the Seward Co-op the other day, and I tell you, this baby was giggling in such a way to its mother, whatever was going on. I mean, it was such a a laugh, and it was just this little tiny being with these cheeks, and it was just filling the aisles. I mean, like I just felt like the entire Co-op in my heart which was kind of heavy that morning. And I went into the co-op, and it was just like the sun had come out, you know, out of the darkness. And the, just the, the joy just was filled, this baby just laughing for no reason other than that his mother was looking at him and making a face or something. And so this the sound and the sight, the smell, the taste, the touch, a hug from a friend, you know, we have these wonderful senses. Um, yesterday, I went to teach a half-day retreat at the U, and um, it was kind of chilly, and I was rushing to get there on time. Right, the mindfulness teacher rushing to get to teach the retreat, <laughs> and um, and there was a magnolia tree with pink and white blossoms right there in the in the concrete near the Kaufman Union it's quite beautiful and uh, this young woman of color was there with she had earrings with globes of the earth on them and she was completely fascinated in front of the tree and you know it's Saturday afternoon nobody's around it's her and I and I'm rushing and I thought no I need to stop and together We enjoyed the blossom, and I said, I can't think of the name of this tree, but does it matter? We don't need a name, and we just took it in. We just took it in, and we smiled, and we were just so enjoying that moment together, her and I, and the magnolia tree. So then there's the mundane pleasures. There's the mundane meditative pleasures. Maybe some of you tasted that today, the mundane... But, like, where the mind calms down for a little bit. Did anybody have that? Maybe just kind of subtle or just coming into this space, how we feel together when we're just quiet and we know we feel safe here. Like, it's such a refuge, this center, all the years of practice, all of the hearts and minds. We can come here and, ah, you know. So we have... It's also when the mind is concentrated. It's when we refer to what are called the jhanic or the jhanas, where the mind starts to withdraw actually from the senses, sense pleasures, and it just kind of goes into its own quietude or cave. But that's a form of pleasure. And then there's the nabonic sukha or sweetness, the sweetness of freedom, where there's the letting go. Maybe we taste it in moments, moments where, ah, right? You just fall away. Freedom. So these are the different kinds of um, happiness. Mary Oliver puts the sweetness and the happiness this way from her poem, from her book, A Thousand Mornings. A Thousand Mornings. All night my heart makes its way, however it can, over the rough ground of uncertainties, but only until night meets and then it's overwhelmed by morning. The light deepening, the wind easing, and just waiting as I too wait. And when have I ever been disappointed for the red bird to sing? For the Red Bird to Sing, she also says from her book, A Thousand Mornings, The sea can do craziness. It can do smooth. It can lie down like silk breathing. Or it can toss havoc shoreward. It gives gifts or withholds all. It can rise, ebb, froth, like an incoming frenzy of fountains. Or it can sweet talk entirely. It can as I can too, and so, no doubt, can you and you. It can do craziness and smooth, lie down like silk breathing or toss havoc ashore. It can sweet talk entirely, and we can too. So what are some practices that support us living in this world of sukha and dukkha? We can live with compassion. We can connect with the other and nurture those connections. So I will admit and share this, that I looked at my circle. I was at um, the Conference of the Life Bears on the Native American genocide that happened um, a couple weeks ago. Some of my friends were there. And um, I learned a lot about the pain, more about all of the murdered missing women. And then there was also dance and song and ceremony and play and delicious food made by chefs, native chefs. And um a woman from the East Indian tradition um, composed a dance that we all did in the sanctuary of the Universalist Church where it was held. And one of the workshops we had was on how to be a good ally, and they flew in um, an activist uh, community leader, um, T. Marie King, from Birmingham, Alabama, and we had the most experiential and, I think, really practical workshop. She called herself a bridge, a bridge person. And I, it was just so um, helpful. And um, one of the things that was challenged that I walked away from that workshop and, and also from the conference where I really felt very emboldened and courageous, like, look at my circle. Who is in my intimate circle how many people who are other than my demographic am I with? You know, and I was like, I've been uncomfortable for a while, but I'm like, wow, this has got to change. And yeah, you're older, but it's not too late to have people in my inner circle, not just acquaintance, and to actually have people of various diversity and more uh, people, not like a. White cisgender old lady like me, so no, I don't feel old. So anyway, um, and I, 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 I just went up and talked to people, and so, um, and I'm finding that it's just unfolding. It's just unfolding, and I'm having opportunities, and just that setting the intention to connect and nurture those connections, and wake up, to wake up and live deeply. No, these are the ways that we can show up. Change, change yourself, change the world. The change happens when we change our hearts. When we set these intentions. When we connect. Embrace death. Actually, having this health scare really um, deepened. I, I had after freaking out and getting anxious. I kind of went to like you know, one of these days. It's going to be my time. And there was some peace in that, like really accepting how fleeting this life is. Understand the nature of giving. Giving. Work to disarm the ego. Not the healthy sense of self, but that ego personality that needs to puff itself up or needs to somehow um, use and abuse you know, just, just the unhealthy ego, I would say, because so many of us have shame and low self-esteem. We need a healthy sense of ourselves and who we are and where we come from. Work to disarm the ego and remove the three poisons. You know what those are? Greed, hatred, and ignorance, yeah, or delusion. Wise livelihood. How do we earn our living? What do we do in the world? Um, And then realize non-attachment. So those are a few, and we can add to the list, and I'm going to be going to silence soon, and let's let you all share your wisdom. So let's see. So I'd like to um, share a couple things and then um, read a closing poem. So Philip Moffat, who is one of my mentors that I love, he says that um, that we need to suffering is to be known. It's a felt experience. Okay, we can't just talk about it. We have to actually feel and open to it. What we ordinarily lump together under the label of suffering, the Buddha called a tangle, meaning a complex of physical, emotional stimuli registering in your brain and your mind's reaction to the stimuli. The Buddha taught that to penetrate suffering, you must deconstruct this tangle, but you can't conduct the practice as a detached observer, as though you were, I love this, as though you were a barcode scanner that reads the prices of groceries in the supermarket. You know, so many of us think, well, I'll just observe it from this detachment. We actually have to get intimate with it. It has to be known and felt for us to wake up. Sorry, blew that one up. Okay, so, but we can't get lost, right? It's being aware. I know what it feels like to get lost in suffering, be like completely, overly lost in emotion. I've had to cultivate a lot of equanimity. so. He says, on the contrary, in order for you to know its true nature, you must be willing to be with your suffering, experience and feel the ouch of it in our own life. And some of us are in the racial affinity groups, and we need to feel the ouch. We need to see what we're unconscious and bring it conscious. You can't just do it from the head. So... um, According to um, Helen Luke, who was a Jungian, she says that neurotic suffering is the result of collapsing under or refusing to consciously carry the pain of life. Ajahn Sumedho says, Understand dukkha. To understand it, you must be willing to stand under it. Luke said, You must be willing to receive suffering in the matter of standing under a waterfall, standing under a waterfall. So here's, um, let's see, this is a poem that I'd like to close with. So Mark Nepo writes, we tend to be preoccupied with difficulty and happiness driven by experience from one to the other. But what life has, keeps teaching me, is that difficulty and peace are happening at the same time. The bitter and the sweet are happening at the same time. And that a primary challenge of being human is to let both in. Our job seems to hold both at once and the reward is the experience of oneness. And he wrote the poem, The Sway of It All. And so I lift my face from the mud, the mud of my past, the mud of history, the thick and ragged bark of how we think everyone but our own darkness is the enemy. I lift my face like a worn planet spinning on itself to get back into the light, to say to no one, to everyone, it is an honor to be alive. It is an honor to be alive. Let's sit for a moment. So I apologize if I've said anything that intentionally or unintentionally caused harm. It was certainly unintentional. Forgive me. And please, let's open up before the children come and give us an infusion of sweetness. Um, So um, how are you? How's it going? Comments, questions, please. We're all in this together. Okay, we got a microphone, and just so you know they do record these things, but don't be shy, please say your name. Anyone?
0: So you um, made a point at the end of suffering not being something you can just observe from a distance and having to get into it. I think many of us, certainly myself, have made a lifelong habit of trying to roll it off and how does one if you how does one get into Actually, I'm not even sure how awareness to actually feeling it. If you've spent 40 years walling yourself off from it and building up all kinds of techniques to not feel it, anyone have any thoughts about that?
1: Actually, you are right now. The first step is awareness that I've been walled off and I'm not feeling it, and I've been pushing it away. So that's that dukkha dukkha aversion, pushing it away. We shut down, and and also. Honoring the fact that these are survival patterns, thank you, thank you for protecting me to what I couldn't open to. You know, I can't just rip it open. Um, I early in my suffering when I was young, my first meditation teacher he said, "Mira, you can't rip the flower open. You know, you're a good person. You know, let me let it unfold." So again, bit by bit, and the first thing is we come into our bodies, just feeling our bodies. Just slowly and with support. You no, know, you don't have to do it alone. If anyone wants to add, but I mean again, waking up and recognizing I've been shut off, I've been walled off, I'm not I'm kind of numb, I'm not I'm I'm not, you know, feeling it, or I'm continuing to do those habitual patterns to avoid it. You know? Whether it's a drink, a drug, a Netflix, a relationship, right? We know that. So, so compassion, you're on it, you're on the path. Yes? Uh, I would say to the young lady who just asked that question, the very fact that you're asking the question is the opening, the curiosity and, and the being here with people who are interested in living in a world where there is... A, my, my theme has been life is sorrow and song, and aware of the song of the world at the same time allows me to turn toward whatever suffering there is. Years ago, many, many, many years ago, I read a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and that was an extraordinary experience for me because I did not know at that point, 40 years ago, that there could be meaning in suffering, so I just pass that on. Thank you. Thank you. And since we're on that theme, I heard another
0: phrase about uh, uh, suffering and also change, how
1: to get there. And, and as Mara said, accept. I mean, uh, awareness is first. And then I've heard also then second is acceptance, mm-hmm. uh, just really being one with it. And I think that feeds into the compassion piece that you were talking about, but uh, that we are all in this together and that I'm not alone in
0: that suffering. And that, um, and when I can accept that, then I can move on to actually working on it. But
1: uh, yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So. Uh, Yes over the last year or so I've kind of been really working with this practice of trying to be intimate with suffering just especially when it seems really overwhelming because realizing that like it just can really spiral um, endlessly. And there's a really interesting um, result of intimacy with suffering is that is loving kindness is it it actually has a really important function around, making us it tenderizes the heart and it creates this r- free expression of loving kindness where you can be you know you do that work and and um yeah you just find yourself just totally undefended and able to be in the world and just feeling it more fully so yeah it's a really kind of um unexpected um, fruit of that intimacy. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah, the Buddha provided us with the divine abidings. Thank you very much. Yeah.
2: yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mira. So there is going to be a question here somewhere. I just need to kind of talk it out for a Whatever. second. <laughs> um, you mentioned as a psychotherapist, you know, it, Encountering people who experience that, like low self esteem, and how it's, um, there is a need to build up a healthy, uh, sense of ego. Um, and then you mentioned is it sankara dukkha? Mm -hmm. Right. So I feel like that the stories that kind of low self esteem is, in my mind at least, that type of dukkha. Um, and it can feel really. Uh, because it's so personal and such a deep story very like like there is no separation so um, being intimate with something that feels so personal I guess the question is how do you go about starting um, to to see that it is separate that there is that that is actually suffering and not like part of who you are
1: well you, you just, it's so, isn't it interesting when we ask the question, we've already contained the, the answer, so to speak. So you just named it. Oh, this is Sankara Dukkha. This is it. There's, this is a deep story that I take personally that I get lost in. Who's aware? Who's seeing? There's mind, there's awareness. The power of awareness, of mindfulness and compassion. Is extraordinary. You could, you could be lost in that cave of self-loathing for a thousand years in one little match, one little, even if it goes out, just a moment of recognition. Oh, this is dukkha. This is dukkha. This is a story. This is a deep story that I believe, and I go into the trance of unworthiness. Tara Brock. Trance of unworthiness, rain method, recognize, accept, right, investigate, nurture. We got lots of tools to to bring awareness to work to meet that with compassion for that kind of story and suffering that we've identified with. And this is the path. This is the tool. This is the being aware and waking up. Right. Whatever the stories are, it's mind made. Every day I share, I I do this one particular practice, where it's like um, most basically includes most of our suffering is mind-made. Most of it, even in the midst of the actual suffering, when we have a way to be with it, you know, the song and the suffering, and see its impersonal nature, you know, we can we can be in the midst of it but not be lost in it. And so much at the effect. Right? So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, good. So thank you, everyone. Are the kids going to come in? We need them. (laughs) And people are probably getting hungry too, right? Yeah. So um, here they come. Are they coming? Thank you, everyone. I just realized we didn't dedicate the merit, but we'll do that all together with the kids so the benefits of our practice go out into the world.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.